coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I broke nine ribs on one side because I was drunk and I fell. And in a hotel the night before, I broke nine ribs. I worked the next day with 600 children all day long. No, I worked with the kids. Well, when I broke them, I was drunk. And I remember reaching over and touching and I felt them where they didn't meet. I felt that it was broken. That was painful. I think I passed out at that point, but I'm not sure if that was pain or alcohol, probably alcohol. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Lisa Thomas, born at only three pounds, six ounces in 1962. Lisa was sent home to die by the doctors, but the universe had a different plan. Unfortunately, this plan didn't mean that Lisa's life would be easy as she experienced severe childhood neglect and trauma. As a result, Lisa feels almost no pain, literally, physically, almost no pain. She eventually turned to alcohol to cope, but found Lion Rock Recovery in early 2020. Today, she lives in Texas with her spouse, whom she has been with for more than 33 years. She has three children, two are deaf, two are the same age, and two are adopted. Lisa says that nature is her religion and the one thing that makes her happy. In her free time, she enjoys cooking, baking, taking care of plants, and trying to eliminate paper in her life. She works from home and loves the fact that her commute is across the yard and the traffic is merely a multitude of squirrels and birds that cross her path. This is just amazing. Just amazing. Everything about Lisa's story is so serendipitous and, um, you're, you're really going to enjoy the, the irony, the, 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 the funny pieces of what we, we go over. I'll give you an example. Um, Lisa was an interpreter, became a, a, an interpreter for deaf, for the deaf community in AA and NA meetings long before she ever discovered that she had a problem. She learned sign language while she was pregnant, not knowing that her daughter would end up being deaf. There are so many little amazing things in her story. She called Lion Rock uh, while intoxicated and does not remember getting herself into the program. I, I, I just had so much fun with Lisa. Her story has all sorts of twists and turns. The, you know, not feeling physical pain, didn't know that she was in labor. You're going to love it. So please, please, please share this. We are going to work on making this more accessible for the deaf community so that people who struggle with addiction are able to have access to podcasts and other forms of media meetings that can help. We really want to work on that. So Lisa's going to help us with that. Thank you so much, Lisa. And I hope you enjoy this episode. All right. Episode 132. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Awesome. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. Hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Really excited. Uh, we get our episodes in season three started off with a uh, the worst hair picture, which has been interpreted, as I always say, uh, many different ways. I have a picture that is posted uh, on our Instagram, the one that you supplied us for this episode. Can you tell me a little bit about you and this group of, I think it's mostly ladies. It's all girls. It's all girls. Can you tell me about this group? I was in middle school and we had had a birthday party, I think. And I don't know what happened, but I (laughs) wasn't happy. My arms are crossed. My cousin standing next to me. She doesn't look happy either. So I'm not sure what happened. It was somebody's birthday and we were at my cousin's house at a pool And apparently I had been swimming because that's what my hair looks like on a bad day and just unhappy, fuzzy haired. And back in that time, there was no product for hair. So you got what you got. No product at all. (laughs) No product. There was something called dippity do. I think I I don't even know what that was, but we, I didn't have anything. So that's what my hair looked like on most days. That's what my hair looks like most days now. (laughs) Well, just give me a moment and might do that. <laughs> I love it. And uh, how old are you in this photo? I'm going to guess 12 or 13. And this, it looks like the seventies. Yes, most definitely. Most definitely in the seventies. Awesome. Well, that takes us back to your childhood. Um, one thing that is very interesting about your childhood and something that we, we see more as very survivable now, but in 1962, when you were born, you were born at three pounds, six ounces as uh, an only child. And they did not think you were going to make it. Right. I was born and I stayed in the hospital only a very short time. The doctor sent me home to die. My parents moved in with my grandmother, who was just this great kind of spirit who kind of took care of everybody in our family and she took care of me and I lived in a shoebox to begin with on her stove in the kitchen because it was the warmest place in the house even though it was Mm. summer I stayed in the kitchen and then my grandmother's neighbor was a cabinet builder and he made a doll bed for his daughter and they loaned that to my grandmother for me to sleep in. So I stayed in a doll bed for a really long time. Amazingly, I didn't really have any repercussions for being born that small. Two questions for you. One, uh, why do you think you're born that small? Is there any insight? And two, your father is one of 13 kids and your mother is one of 19 kids. They didn't have any extra baby or kid stuff. I'm the last. My dad's the baby of that group. My mom's the baby of that group. Uh, And my mom's siblings were half step. Got it. uh, And so there's a bunch of kids in that family, but there weren't that close. 
I'm not close to that side of the family only because I was never really exposed to them. My dad's side of the family, as he was the youngest, most of his siblings passed before I got here. So I have cousins. My nearest cousin is 18 years older than me. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Because it's a, you know, I'm picturing this really big family. Um, You ended up being an only child. So also interesting in that you're an only child, but both your parents grew up in, you know, even if they weren't, you know, even if you had step half, what have you, they grew up with a lot of people around, a lot of kids around. Why do you think that you they stopped with one baby. Honestly, my dad said he never wanted children and I was mm. an accident. <laughs> Thanks for the update, dad. Um, and okay. So, so no more kids. And then, and I'm not sure my mother could have any more children. I'm not sure why I was born premature. I wasn't, I'm not sure I was premature. It was low birth weight. So oh, I'm not sure if my mother smoked or drank or, I don't know what happened. She doesn't recall anything, but uh, I have another cousin who was born six months before me. She's a second cousin and she was low birth weight too. Hmm. Same hospital, same family. No, no idea why. What were your parents like? My parents are difficult and I was mostly raised by my grandmother Although I lived with my mom and dad, I stayed with my grandmother every Friday, Saturday, Sunday that I can remember. Mm. And uh, my parents would go out drinking and partying or whatever, and I would stay with my grandmother. My childhood was difficult because I was basically ignored. I have never had a conversation at the dinner table with my father. He doesn't eat with us. He doesn't talk talk to me. I don't remember him ever speaking to me ever, ever. Like, unless I did something wrong and he was mad. Right. So I don't recall a time, not one single time for him saying, how was school today? Um, And I grew up very independent, very sheltered though, in the town that I grew up in, that it was like growing up in the thirties and forties. We were very safe. I never heard of the Vietnam War. I didn't know anything about hippies. I didn't know anything about that. Where where were you? It's a little town in Texas, a small town of about 2,500 people. So it was a, it's a rural town and there was very little going on here. So I was sheltered in that respect, but that also is hurtful when you grow up in a family where my name was lousy. My dad called me lousy. That was my name. My mother to this day doesn't understand why I didn't know he was joking. <laughs> what child thinks that you're joking when you call them lousy? Yeah. And um, my parents don't quite get who I am. Yeah. I'm very different. And I'm basically the black sheep of the family. I'm different than just about everybody else in the family. You know, something that happened, you know, you were you were gravely neglected although you did have this relationship with your grandmother, was there some love felt there? Yes. My grandmother loved me and my aunt, my dad's sister, she loved me and my mom loves me. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure my dad loves me somewhere, but it just doesn't come across that way. So I had a really loving relationship with my grandmother. Um, We were very poor. I remember putting a rag under the door to keep the cold air out. 
because we were poor, but we weren't, I didn't lack, I didn't think I lacked anything. I didn't feel that way. Um, I did feel a lot of love from my grandmother and my aunt now. I call her auntie and um, she took care of me too. So there was love, but also my grandmother, unfortunately, was given, sold, whatever, to marriage to a much older man when she was 13. So when it comes to protecting children, she probably didn't have any idea how to do that or even that I needed protecting. And it turned out that you did need protecting. I believe so. Yeah. It's I, I'm, I, I've faced a lot of trauma that I don't remember. I have pieces and spots of trauma, but I don't have a clear picture. Do you, um, you, in your exploration of this topic, you did discover some sexual molestation. How in your memory does that look? Mm, that's a difficult question. I know that in therapy, I have broken down asking people to get off of me. Mm. I have nightmares of of uh, something coming toward me under the water. And I remember being in swimming, learning to swim and having being touched in the water by someone that was trying to teach me how to swim in an inappropriate way. I remember that. Um, I have just this vivid picture of a closet and water. And I absolutely was terrified growing up of an old fashioned doorknob that was like on my grandmother's bathroom. So I really don't remember a whole lot, although it is obvious in therapy that I have, yeah, I have a lot of trauma and it's caused me to be, to have reactions in an odd way. Um, I don't feel pain. So this, this is, uh, this is, you know, what, what I was getting to, because when I hear someone say, I don't feel pain, right. I have like 8,000 questions and, and, um, as I'm sure our listeners do like emotional pain, physical pain, right. So, and, and, um, you don't feel physical pain, which there is a, there, there's an, a, a disorder, a physical disorder where people can't feel pain and it, and they tend to hurt themselves and not know. And it, it's actually, you know, we, what would you'd think that that would be an advantage in some ways, right? You'd, Oh, I, you don't hurt, but it actually is very dangerous because that you realize I can that. feel pain. I can't, I do get headaches. I feel if I stub my toe, but it doesn't actually hurt. Um, I do feel pain. So I don't have that disorder. Right. Right. Mine is definitely a psychological disorder where I think being neglected, you just learn to not have pain, but yours is so wild in the sense that Mm -hmm. that disorder is very much consistent. Right. And this, this, I think when people say things and, and I'm sure being born in the sixties, you can add some color to this too, which is people felt you have watched the change in how we talk about mental health. And Mm -hmm, that, that I remember, um, 
you know, for me coming into the field, you know, I, I, frankly, I came into the field as a, as a patient and coming into the field, I've seen the change of how we talk about things, but I remember PTS, someone telling me like what year they started talking about PTSD and how it wasn't that long ago. And I, my mind was blown because when you show up, right. And that's the, that's the language you it's, it's almost like it's always been that way. And so you have this perspective of this idea of psychosomatic pain. I mean, that was something that literally people felt like you were crazy. You were making it up or you were crazy. If you had never told anyone, because I didn't know that I didn't feel the pain. The, the one thing that I remember early on is at about 12, I was in middle school early on before this picture. No, after the p- bad hair picture, <laughs> it was before the bad hair picture. I had, I was playing basketball with the small team and the coach got angry at someone and just shoved me to the floor and broke my arm in several places. Angry at someone, not you, not me. I was in the way. Oh, she pushed me down. The kids still remember it. I mean, when we get together for class reunions, they still remember this incident. Nothing happened to her back then. Nobody cared. Right. And it was odd to me that I had, they were going to put me in surgery to fix it because I had bones in my growth plate that were broken and I didn't feel anything. I never felt pain. It swelled up. It turned black. I was just like, okay. And then I remember thinking, it never hurt. It's, it's really, it's really wild. And, and yet you can feel you, you let yet you can actually feel things. You're you're not paralyzed. There's no, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean that, that I think one thing that is so important about your example and why I, I, I brought up the progression of time and how we look at things is I've heard so many times people say, well, it's all in her head right? Something is all in her head and, you know, it's usually her, but all in their head and right. Something can be in your, your brain is so powerful. And this is your, your perfect case in point. Your brain is so powerful that in your head literally means you break your arm and you don't feel pain. And for you, you went into labor, did not feel pain. Correct. I was going to the doctor that morning for my regular checkup. She was due in a week. And, um, I got to the doctor's office and forgive me, but he said, Oh shit, I feel a foot. (laughs) And then he said, Oh shit, I feel another foot. He said, you don't feel anything. I was like, no, I don't feel anything. And I was, her feet were hanging out. I had to have an emergency C-section right then and there within 15 minutes, but I had no idea I was even in labor. I I knew my stomach gets hard. They have those Braxton Hicks kind of contractions. And I thought, ah, that was what was happening because she wasn't due for a week. And I never knew I was in labor, never felt a thing. I never asked for pain medicine after that either, after a C-section. It's it's so, so this idea of it's all in your head, like I, I, it is all in my head sort of. Right. But, but I, I want to highlight for people that it's all in your head, which is, which is kind of the narrative that has been, and it's been changing over time. You can have 
quote unquote, psychosomatic pain when, you know, you have amputees who feel, you know, pain Mm -hmm. on a limb that's no longer there. You can have pain that your brain is telling you, you know, your brain is telling you whether you have pain or don't have pain. And I just think it's your, your example is a really easy one to understand for people, how powerful our brains are in deciding how we feel things. And so if you are a person who, you know, struggles with stomach aches. This is something I hear a lot. Stomach aches. Oh, it's psychosomatic. It, it, it is very real in your body, even if it's related to an emotional trauma or otherwise. And I think Correct. that's, that's the important pieces. The medical portion of what we're creating with our minds is still a medical problem or, or, or situation or issue or however you want to call it. Doctors don't understand my situation at all. So I never mention it because they don't understand it. If you put your hand on a, on a stove, will you feel that? Eventually I I've worked, I worked in a, a commercial kitchen in my last job helping out and I would burn myself and not know it until the next morning or maybe an hour or two later. And how would you know? Um, either it kind of hurt, itched, or I went, oh crap, there's a blister. Now, if I step on a piece of glass and cut my foot, I feel it. Yeah, I feel it's not that I don't feel anything. It's just, it seems the more severe the pain, the less I feel it. I don't know. It's wild. That's wild. It's, 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 and I don't like telling people that because I think people think I make it up. Right. But that's what I mean. People don't like to talk about psych, what we call psychosomatic pain, because they think you're making it up. And I, I really, uh, you know, I mean, any woman who's listening to this, who's had children, uh, knows (laughs) that if you're not feeling labor, there's no making that up. There's no, there's, yeah, there's nothing. And I, I'm absolutely can say that I don't usually tell people because it's an unusual occurrence. I've never met anybody like me. And I know that I can't remember why. Right. And we talk about it in therapy that I'm not sure I want to remember why. There is a reason I don't remember it. And my brain is protecting me. Yes. Your brain is protecting you and our brains. And this gets into alcoholism actually and, and, Mm -hmm. and drinking, which is that our brains are geared for survival, right? It's, it's, I always say that like when we hire alcohol to do a job for us, you know, when I was a kid and I hired alcohol to do a job, it did a great job. It was so helpful. It got me through really difficult times. It made other times fun. It was, it made my personality, you know, not care about things. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was great. It, it, I wouldn't have done it otherwise, but eventually it stops working somewhere. But the point is that the brain is engaging in protective mechanisms and your brain with the neglect and, and the abuse pain became in one way, shape or form so great that your body, your brain found the ability to shut it off. And I wonder also, interestingly, if part of the reason that you, I mean, this is like, my, my, um, you know, armchair theory. Um, but you know, feeling labor feel, I I know that trauma, sexual trauma, that is that a lot of women re-experience sexual trauma 
when they go into labor or as with childbirth with, with children. And I had some of this, um, with my boys and you in your body may have shut that down, you know, in particular, cause that's such a severe pain that your body may have said, absolutely not. We're not doing this. I believe that to be true. Um, I've had other incident incidences where I have broken my ribs. I broke nine ribs on one side because I was drunk and I fell. And in a hotel nine the night before ribs. I broke nine ribs. I worked the next day with 600 children all day Do you long. you feel that? No, I worked with the kids. Well, oh. when I broke them, I was drunk and I remember reaching over and touching and I felt them where they didn't meet. Right. I felt that it was broken. That was painful. I think I passed out at that point, but I'm not sure if that was pain or alcohol, probably alcohol. <laughs> And the next day I was up and working with kids and I drove myself four and a half hours home. So I did have some discomfort, but it wasn't miserable. So people who say, gosh, it's miserable. And my kids are like, I'm like, okay, it cannot possibly be that bad. (laughs) You know, if they hurt themselves, it's like, okay, that can't be that bad. I have one adopted daughter who feels pain 10 million times more than anybody else. And I'm like, come on, it can't be that bad. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, with you as the mom, I, it's like, you know, it's, it's, I can't even imagine trying to explain like, no mom, this really hurts. <laughs> yeah. And I have, you know, now that I have uh, been through therapy and through treatment and in recovery, I still don't feel, and my brain is still protecting me. And I have talked about it over and over again. And I don't, I don't want to know. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't know and I, and I go through life like this, it's okay. I, I, I think that's fair. And if you, you you can always, you know, you can always go back and figure something out um, if you need to, but I think, um, you know, you, I, I do agree that you don't have to remember every detail to heal and you don't have to go back and drag everything up. And, and, you know, there, there is the ability to heal with the understanding that something traumatic happened and your body protected itself and move on from there. And I, I think that's a really good point to make. Can you tell me about your drinking? How did you start drinking? Well, my father gave me alcohol when I was three, four, five ish, maybe six, three, four, five, six. He gave me orange flavored vodka because he thought it was funny to see me drunk. That's when I first drank alcohol. He still thinks that's funny. Um, But after that, like I said, my parents had parties and people were always drinking and I would go around and drink after them. They would leave a glass and I would drink it. And I did that off and on. There were periods of time where I didn't drink because it wasn't available. I mean, when you're young, I remember being maybe 10 and drinking beer at 10 because it was in the refrigerator, but I didn't like beer. Um, So then about 16, my parents moved me from my small comfort town to a large town with no warning. I walked home from school one day. We had moved into town from rural area and I was excited to live there because we were close to school. I had made friends. We were walking home. I saw a moving truck. We ran to see who it was and it was me. The next morning we moved. 
no wonder you have trauma. I mean, <laughs> so we that? moved the next day. And so when I moved, we moved to a school when I first, so my graduating class here has about 28 people. I didn't graduate here, but I, they're still my classmates. And that class had well into 900 students and in a large school and it was completely graffitied. I'd never seen graffiti. And when I started that school, I ended up making friends with the kids who drank and used drugs. And I was completely traumatized. I think if I go back and look at it, I probably uh, was anorexic to a point. I was very, very, very thin. And then I started using drugs and alcohol. And that's where it progressed. I stopped using alcohol when my daughter, when I was pregnant with my daughter. When I found out I was pregnant, that was the end of it. And I didn't the whole entire time with pregnancy. I didn't use anything. Perfect pregnancy. Love being pregnant. Oh. Um, and so <laughs> I had a perfect pregnancy. Maybe that's because I didn't feel things. I don't I didn't get nauseated. I have no yes. idea. But um, I really did enjoy being pregnant. And um, after that, they told me that I couldn't have any more children. And well, they told me that in high school that I couldn't have kids to begin with. And I had one and they said no more. Did you ever find out why you moved? my parents decided we were going to move. That's it. There was no That's like it. job or. No, my dad is a jack of all trades. So he does whatever he can do to make a living. And he decided that he was going to move to this place because there was an ocean there and he wanted to be a shrimper. So then I grew up on a shrimp boat around all those people and I can cuss and <laughs> <laughs> with words you've never heard before. I, love I can it. make them up. So I've been around shrimpers and boating. And um, so I really enjoy the water. Hmm. But uh, we moved for no reason that I knew of. And they knew before they were moving, but bother, didn't bother to tell me. It sounds like your parents, and I, I mean this in a lovingly judgmental way. Um, it sounds like they were had a lot of um, maybe trauma or dysfunction themselves going on. I 1000% agree with that. Yeah. I think that I came from a dysfunctional family who had a dysfunctional family who had a dysfunctional family. And my daughter, my biological daughter is the one who said that she was very proud of me for breaking the cycle of trauma in our family. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Cause it's, it's a lot. I mean, it's pretty interestingly um, this idea of numbness and, mm -hmm. and, and ignoring and not being seen. I, it's, I feel like you could have gone either way, right. You could have had this, this protective mechanism of I'm not going to feel, but I could also see it going the other way where I'm ignored. I'm not seen. I'm not heard. I'm going to make myself it's so big. I can't be ignored. So, you know, like I won't be ignored. So, you know, I, I could see it going either way of this, of these coping mechanisms. I think that what happened is I was really quiet and I, I'm not close to anyone except my husband and my family. I didn't make friends. It was difficult to make friends. I make, I make lots of acquaintances. Hmm. But it's hard for people to get to know me and my family. There was an incident just recently with my dad and someone else. And she called me in tears because he was his, himself. 
And she said, I can't believe he behaved that way. And I said, welcome to my world. And she said, oh, my God, I didn't know. Yes, I know you didn't know. Nobody knows what goes on behind that door. And so the alcohol then would take me to, I didn't realize why, but I was just trying to escape my life, I think. Yeah. Just trying to escape. And the alcohol kept me numb. Mm -hmm. And I was already numb to a point, but evidently I needed more numbness. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just to uh, to top it off, did you... um did the drinking ever get bad enough in high school or, you know, cause you had kids pretty young. What she was ter- 20, I was 24. So 24. Okay. In high school, I, I skipped school more than I went to school. I hung out with the wrong kids, but I always did my homework. I'm a very good student. School is my safe place. So I love going to school. I love the idea of school. Uh, And my teachers were always helpful and I liked learning. So this was my safe place. So I did do my homework. We would skip school and go to the beach and the kids would make fun of me because I was doing my homework. Mm -hmm. And I never failed or had bad grades, but I never excelled in school either. I had decent grades and just kind of went along with it. But the alcohol wasn't interfering at this point. No, it was not interfering at that point. You had a baby at your first, your daughter at 24? 24. Uh, Why did they tell you in high school you couldn't have children? I had all sorts of menstrual problems. And I was in a study, they sent me to the hospital for about a week and then did this long study. And they said, it wasn't a week, it was three days. And then they said, you will never have children. And so I married my high school sweetheart to prove everybody right who said we shouldn't get married. And I married him anyway, and we're still friends, but we are not intended to be together. We are so bad for one another. And eight months into the marriage, I ended up pregnant. I found out I was pregnant three days after seeing an attorney about a divorce. (laughs) Then I found out I was pregnant. So we were going to make it work. Right. Didn't work. But um, that's how that all went down. So in high school, I was told I wouldn't have children. After she was born, I had another miscarriage and the doctor said, let's not do this again. So I didn't. Something really incredible happened. Um, So you stopped drinking for that pregnancy, perfect pregnancy. Um, I, I, I smiled people who've listened to the podcast. I have, um, five-year-old twin boys. And so, uh, a twin pregnancy is the, one of the most painful things I have ever experienced. And I've detoxed from heroin quite a few times. And, uh, (laughs) and so when people (laughs) say they enjoy pregnancy, I always look at them like, are you okay? Blink if you need help, you know, Um, Definitely. Don't. I loved being pregnant. Yeah. That's, that's, I immediately question anything, you know, like (laughs) uh, I can't even imagine, but you, you got pregnant, you stopped drinking, you had this perfect pregnancy, but something really wild happened while you were pregnant. Can you tell us about that? Really wild happened. Well, I was working for a company and uh, there was a temporary worker because we were very busy. And she said, let's take a sign class. And I'm like, Sandy, what in in your mind makes you think that me being pregnant and in a bad marriage wants to go and take a sign (laughs) Sign language class? And 
you know, she begged and I said, okay, I'll go. And she came and picked me up and we went to a sign class. And that was, I started January the 11th, 1986. And my daughter was born May 30th, 1986. I was learning sign while pregnant, not knowing she would be born deaf. Unbelievable. So when she was born, you had, you know, a basic knowledge of, of sign language. Well, unfortunately, the first class, Sandy passed and I didn't. <laughs> and so I didn't know Katie was born deaf. I didn't know she was deaf yet. So during the summer, Sandy had passed and I've always been very good in school and I couldn't stand that she passed and I didn't. Yeah. So in the summer, I was going to take it again. And then in the third class is when I found out she was deaf and my teacher was deaf then. And I said, hey, I think Katie's deaf. And with a big grin on her face, she said, that's great. So um, that's how I got started with my journey to into the deaf community. So I can say that I've always been protected in some manner. Did you, has anyone in your family been born deaf? Is there, no. so there's no. And the, we didn't know why she was deaf for all these years. And about a year ago, she had one of those is it 99 and me and DNA 20, 23, 23 and me, yeah. not 99. That's my age. No. It's, um, no, it's 23 okay. and <laughs> me. Um, she had that done and come to find out her father and I carry a non-dominant gene for deafness. So put us together and you get deaf children. Wow. And so she was deaf genetically, but we don't have that in my family, except maybe way back. There was some inkling, maybe something someone called dumb or dummy or something. And that was an indication. But and so she's genetically deaf, but we had no clue of why. How did your husband take that? You know, it sounds like you you were preparing um, maybe, you know, your teacher says, you know, congratulations. What, what went on for you when you had this information? I think like anybody else, grief comes along regardless. And I still suffer from grief occasionally, even though I'm, I know everything there is to know about the deaf community, except being deaf. Um, I, I struggled first with that whole cycle of grief. Yeah. My ex-husband has never gotten out of it. I don't think he still Mm. suffers from grief. He still is back in a bad place when it comes, but he's better now. He's better than he was. But, you know, I think initially that really, we were already in a bad marriage and that was just the nail in the coffin. How long did it take for that marriage to dissolve after Katie was born? Less than a year. Less than a year. What did that do to your drinking? You know, it wasn't that bad. I didn't, my drinking was okay. We didn't have, we had alcohol in the home, I guess. I lived with my parents because I didn't have, I gave up my home for him because I was leaving. And so for a long time, we didn't have alcohol in the house. But if we went out drinking, I would get shit-faced, like totally Mm -hmm. drunk. And so I didn't have, I didn't have the, I had a problem. I didn't have the problem I acquired later. So this is one of my favorite parts of your story. (laughs) I really enjoy this. Um, So you, at one point, you you know, you, you were interpreter sign language and you, as a, as just like a job, as a job, just like a job, you like, I got to go to work, whatever. 
you were interpreting AA and NA meetings. Now, for a long time. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's so good. It's so good. Okay. Tell me everything about that. (laughs) Well, the deaf community is just like everybody else. And, you know, there were people who had been into trouble or DUIs or whatever and had court ordered NA and AA meetings. And I have done inpatient therapy. I have been through the whole thing as an interpreter for multiple people. But I would, did you, did you go and look for the job? Did it fall in your lap? No, it's just part of the community that I lived in. There are very few interpreters and it just so So happened that I would be the one that would be willing to go to the bad part of town for an NA meeting. Right. And I would go and I just, it never applied to me. It just didn't apply. (laughs) This is my favorite part of alcoholism. And, you know, I always say alcoholism is the worst word for what we have because you take the alcohol away and we still have the ism. I'm still, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's really just the worst, but you know, but this is the funniest part. People say like, how can you, my, you know, I would say like, you know, I would talk to people and they would say, I I can't go to an AA meeting. I can't go to an AA meeting. People will see me there and then they'll know I have a problem. And we would say, you are the last person to know you have a problem. Everybody else. Everybody else else knows. Yeah. Yeah. You're the, you're the last. And so here is a perfect example. Years and years and years of interpreting literally verbatim signing physically, physically acting out this, these stories for other people, but it never applied to me. And I never went intoxicated. I never went to any meetings like that. I was working. So at that point, at that point in my life, I still had that boundary of not drinking at work. And so I did, I would go to AA and NA meetings (laughs) on a regular basis and see people at, Hey, how are you? Good. You know? And it was interesting. Uh, I did go to an AA meeting one time on my own years and years ago ran into somebody who thought I was going to be interpreting for someone. And I sat through the meeting and they thought the person just didn't show up. Didn't do any good at that point because I was just too gone. Tell me about your drinking. How did your drinking get bad? Well, we moved to Colorado for a job that I thought would make the family happier. We were just in a a rut, a negative rut. Uh, My kids were difficult. I have one daughter who is adopted the same age as my biological daughter. So I have three kids total. I have two that are adopted, two that are the same age and two that are deaf. And it just seems that at that point on television, there used to be some television program about the Osborne family. Ozzy Osbourne and the family, Mm -hmm. ours would have been a heck of a lot better because we were just chaotic all the time. And my husband and I are, you know, you connect with people that are similar to you. He's just like me in a lot of ways. And his mother was an alcoholic and died when he was 17. And here I am an alcoholic, but we had the same issues. And So our house was just chaotic all the time. And I thought this job would be a really great job. And it was so stressful. And I was so isolated. And I had no support, no friends, no background, just work. And I was working in a kitchen. 
chefs and kitchen cooks are notorious for drinking. Yes, they are. And I started drinking more and I wasn't, I had a, an administrative job, but I was always helping in the kitchen. And after work, we'd go drink. And I was isolated by myself because my husband didn't follow for almost a year. So I was by myself oh, wow. and drinking and drinking and drinking and drinking. And then we all got, my daughter started working at the same place and my husband was there and it was just difficult. And so instead of dealing with a relationship or difficulties in a relationship, I would just drink because that's how I escaped. And so I started drinking more and more and more. It came to a point where I was starting to drink at work. And I didn't drink very often at work, but I would drink at work. When we moved to that from there to my last job, it was just so stressful. And I just had no coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to deal with stress. So I just drank. And then the alcohol takes over and you just drink more and more and more. And your and your mind just the alcohol just is takes over. And it took over. And I was drinking every day from the time I got up until the time I passed out or went to bed. Did you, you know, something you mentioned early on, you know, that you think you had been anorexic um, and and a, a component of this, of anorexia and a component, which kind of plays into all the things is control and the ability to control um, your environment and not feeling pain, you know, the ability control to control too, right. It's control. Your brain is very, very good at control. And what I wanted to just highlight real quick is that you are a person who is phenomenal at this art of emotional control and you are no match for alcohol. You were no Correct. match for alcohol, alcohol. You continued to drink and alcohol. There is a point it rewires the brain. It addicts the body. It depends, you know, your body becomes, becomes dependent. dependent and you are no match. And you're someone who doesn't feel pain through labor or, or breaking their arm. And so, or nine ribs, I, I think that's a really important piece to remember for people who are like, what's wrong with me? Why can I do all these other things and not this thing? Why exactly. can I, why can I control this? I have a doctoral no degree. I can do anything. I even drinking. I could get a doctoral degree. Yeah. I'm very, I function really well with alcohol. However, when the alcohol took over, it wasn't me anymore. And I couldn't function worth a crap. Um, I didn't, um, I, I didn't, I would visit my parents and I would just drink for days. Like I would just drink because I don't know how to handle them. Um, I live near them now and I deal with them every day and I'm better at handling them. Thanks to therapy. Thanks to recovery. And thanks to line rock. So you started drinking from morning till night. And, and I think that's, you know, if you have any thoughts on that, that's one thing. Most of us, don't ever don't see that coming. Like we don't opt into this drinking thing and think I'm going to drink in the morning. That seems so wild. And then it just gets earlier and earlier. And then, and then maybe you, I, I, I often would stay up so late that it almost wasn't morning. I was still 
drinking from the night before, or I was right. still drunk from the night before. So you, you, you get into these weird gray areas and then it, it just spirals out snowballs in, out of control. What was the, you, you know, another great part of your story of like how, how, how things were bad. You're drinking morning to night. What happened from there that made that transition? Good question. Part of that, I don't remember. <laughs> Um, I do know that I decided to check myself into detox because I couldn't stop drinking. And if I did, I would, I knew that it would make me really sick, although I don't feel sick. Um, Prior to stopping drinking in 2019, I had a severe episode of an autoimmune illness called mast cell activation syndrome. It's a bone marrow issue where the mast cells are overproductive in my body. And it's basically, I'm allergic to myself and everything else. And that had me down for six weeks. I didn't eat hardly. Um, I couldn't walk. I couldn't stand up. My blood pressure was low. I think at that time, the, I should have stopped drinking then. I didn't realize what I had. I, and this autoimmune was sort of my body's wake up call. You need to wake up. And I wasn't waking up. And so I continued to drink and I still continue to drink day and night. About a year after that, I was up and working and not doing so well, shaking a lot. It was obvious. Everybody knew that I was drinking and I knew that they knew. I mean, there's no secret there. And um, I just decided to check myself into detox. So I called and made arrangements and went to detox. When I was in detox, I was amazed at the people around me who got to detox, not on their own. I was one of the few people that got myself into detox. Nobody in my family said anything. <laughs> Nobody said you should go, wow. you know, you should stop drinking, mom, or hey, honey, I think that this is enough. Nobody ever said anything. It's Were story they of my life. I have no idea. So they just didn't say anything. So this was on me. My adopted daughter, this the first adopted daughter, Charlene, my daughter, she helped me get into detox. She took me over there. She freaked out a bit. Um, and I had called, I had contacted Lion Rock somewhere in this process that I do not remember. And um, the doctor told my daughter that will never, ever work. It will never work. And that I was too far gone. It would never work. And she decided I was going to move in with her and she was going to control my life. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. And that's when I started Line Rock. I don't remember the first few days. I just remember getting the notes later from, from the, you know, the group. And <laughs> I start off, I have my arms crossed, like in the picture. And my arms were crossed my whole life, like in the picture. That's what's yeah. so funny. And then after a while, now I can barely cross my arms. I don't like to cross my arms. So um, but I started that and I think that I just got myself into it because that's not who I was. I'm, I'm a really caring person and a good mother and a good wife and a good cook. And I have lots of things that I wanted to do with my life and drinking myself to death was not one of them. You, so you, you go to detox and you, and then you find yourself. So apparently you called and arranged to get into online outpatient. Yeah, apparently. Um, and you wouldn't be the first, I'll tell you that. Um, I had, I once had a woman on the phone in the, when we first started in the early days and I, 
had her write herself. I knew she was not going to remember our, our phone call. So I had her write herself a note and put it on the bed next to her, next to a glass of water that says call Ashley number um, in the morning. So you wouldn't be the first one, but uh, it is, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, people have woken up in treatment or we, you know, we, things happen and, and you're, there's so many, I'm not a, you know, I, I, I have to work hard at my spirituality personally, um, comes easily to a lot of people. I'm not one of them, but I can, the, the divinity in your story is so wild. There's so many things. And can you believe that, can you believe that I have squashed that spirituality and divinity intervention in my life most of my life. My father is an atheist. My mother is an agnostic. Uh, They poo-poo on all religious spirituality stuff, but I am very spiritual. And I, I, how could you learn sign going to have a baby deaf? I mean, how would you know that? It's more, it's so much deeper than that though. I mean, the AA meetings, the signing of the, there's helping people, deaf people in recovery. I mean, getting yourself into treatment. There's the, the, it's like divinity against your will. It's, it's exactly you're you're spiritual (laughs) against your own will. The spirits come and drag me into something, whether I want to go or not. And it was, somebody said, I, you know, that I, I just think that people don't realize that the path is laid out before them and it's your decision to take the path or not. And I didn't want to take the path. So I just was yeah. put there anyway. Yeah. And, and so this is part of the journey for me is just learning to, to be who I am and have relationships and deal with my emotions when they come. Why do you think, you know, it, it, why, they said you were too far gone, right? At the detox and that this, that online therapy and treatment would not work. Why do you think that it did work for you? I paid attention. Hmm. I think that part of my personality is for you to tell me not to do something and watch me do it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Initially, I could tell that people thought that I was not going to be sober. Mm. I think today is 616 or 619 days. And I absolutely, if I commit to something, that's what I'm going to do. And it was hard. I think in group, I said over and over, this shit is hard. (laughs) And it was, there's nothing easy about it. There is no part of having a relationship with somebody without alcohol that's easy there isn't anything about dealing with my family sober yeah. that's easy. There's nothing about life that's easy, period. And Lion Rock taught me all these coping skills that I needed my whole life that I didn't have. I didn't have a way of understanding cognitive distortion. I didn't have a way, I call them cognitive dissertations actually, but um, I didn't have a way of dealing with that. I didn't have a way of expressing myself and I didn't know myself very well. I am a decent artist and I hadn't drawn since maybe 12. Wow. Um, there was an incident with my family and my art was pooed on and I had won a contest and my dad sold the art piece at the flea market for a dollar. 
and it wasn't worth anything. I didn't feel any value. So when I got to Lion Rock, I realized that there were other people like me in group, even though we were all so diverse and everybody was so different at the core, we're exactly the same. Yeah. And I realized that I wasn't alone and I wasn't the only one that felt worthless. And, you know, feeling lousy about yourself is something that gets you here. And I, I'm really glad that I faced my biggest fear of going and dealing with the emotion that I have, because I've gotten over, you know, the horror of my childhood to an extent by learning how to cope with my emotions and dealing with stress. Yeah. A lot of people talk when, you know, when I talk to a lot of people about getting help, one of the things that they balk at is group. And what I, you know, and I, I use a a data approach saying, look, here's what the data says. It says you're going to be much more successful with intensive group and individual therapy. I think you you probably are a person who may have balked at that as well. I don't know that, but I could see that, you know, it's, you were very private, didn't talk about things. I would assume that talking about your feelings in a group setting, let alone alone, you know, or I'm sorry, in alone, let alone a group setting would be difficult. It was. How, how did, what would you say, or how do you describe to people who are like, I'm not going to tell my dirty laundry in a group of people. I don't know. What would you say to them about that in terms of, as it relates to this recovery? I think something that helped is that it was online and these are not people that I see every week Mm -hmm. An AA meeting. You see somebody every week. And in this meeting, in this intensive group meetings, you see the same people And I witnessed other people open up. Some of them didn't. Some were not successful. Some didn't open up. And I saw that if I were to open up, I could help myself. Mm. And it was something that I really wanted to do for myself. This wasn't some way of hiding anymore. This was a way of figuring out why I drank and how to better myself. At first, I didn't speak at all, probably. I don't remember the first couple of sessions. There's no telling what I didn't say. Um, I just know that my arms were crossed. And um, looking back, I think that even the therapists were questioning whether or not I would be successful. And as it went along, I felt that they were listening to me. Nobody ever listened to me. Mm. So in group, I felt somebody was listening. Even if even if they said nothing, they were still listening to me. They didn't like go to sleep or walk off or they were still in group. They were still listening to me. So that helped me realize that I needed to be heard. And being heard helped heal me to this point. Nobody ever heard me before. Nobody ever listened to my outcry. And this was an outcry and somebody listened. Yeah. And you got to see, you mentioned this, you got to see other people, you got to see the contrast between the people who put themselves out there and opened up and the people who didn't and who got better. So you got to sit and watch for a little bit and see, okay, when Sally opens up, she seems to recover, she seems to get better. And when 
you know, Barbara stays silent. She's not seeming to get better. So you, you, you actually got to ease your way in, in some ways by, by joining and watching and seeing what happened. Yeah. It's sort of that um, idea of watching and learning at first, Mm -hmm. I think, because after a while I could tell when people weren't being authentic, Mm. you can tell by what they Mm -hmm. say, whether they're really paying attention or not, or if they're, if they're really angry and haven't gotten over it yet, Mm -hmm. you can tell. And I was watching myself in the group members. So I could see my anger reflected in someone else's anger about something else, but I could see that was how I reacted. And it was something that um, I'm a very empathetic person. So I could feel, okay, that's probably anger, or this is how they are dealing with it. And that's not what we're told to do. Now, meditation is something that I balked at for a long time absolutely did no meditation. I wouldn't shut my eyes. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. And in the notes that I asked for later when I finished uh, group was I wanted the notes and one of them says, Lisa finally shut her eyes. So it was a point where I finally started doing what was asked of me. And as somebody who's independent, somebody who wants control, it's very hard to give up that control. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in charge of what I did. Then I realized that alcohol was in charge of what I did and I wasn't in charge anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful. I love that. It's again, like it's so your, your story is so it's such a parable. <laughs> it really is. It really is. It really is <laughs> for someone who, for someone who a, a, grew up in an atheist home and it, it's just, you know, there's some, that's stories why that I are, say I'm a black sheep of the family because I just don't have, I do not have the same mindset as most of my family, except my children, my children have taken after me. So I see your family as the black sheep and you as the <laughs> camel. Yeah. What I... <laughs> exactly. Hey, listen, camels store the water. So, you know, there's all sorts yeah, of, there's all sorts but, of good things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I, I don't know if I, you as the black sheep, I, I mean, I, it's, it's you, this, the cool thing and, and, um, when I've done interventions with families, which is one of my favorite things to do is, and um, I use a model called arise and it's, it's based in um, intergenerational trauma. And one of the things that we do in this intervention, as opposed to just focusing on the alcoholic, like you did this, you, you know, and everybody is we actually, before I don't even address the alcoholic or the, you know, addicted, we just have, we go through the family trauma with everyone. And it's really incredible because what we, in this study of intergenerational trauma, what they found is that the person with addiction is actually the person who is having the correct, the natural, the most um, obvious response to the pressure of the pressure cooker of the trauma and that the, the, the people around who continue the trauma and the people who are around who absorb the toxicity and then continue to pass it. That's actually much more abnormal. That is so telling. Yeah. It is really telling the alcoholic tends to be the person. And, and I, when I learned about this, it was like, it makes so much sense. So the out, the, when you have someone who's a raging, you know, alcoholic crazy and they manage, they get everyone in the same room. 
because everybody's worried about the same person, right? So all of the, all of the disputes now no longer matter because we have someone who's dying. We, we get everyone into the same crisis, right? And then we reveal all the things no one wants to talk about because we're drunk and we're pissed and we're going to die. And so everyone's going to talk about it. You can just say whatever you want to, whatever you want to. And we, and then our life depends on making critical changes because our brains function differently. And so those critical changes, if we're successful in making them change the, the, the generational you know, trauma, so to speak. I mean, I'm sure we just add our own new ones in, but I we, can be <laughs> very successful at that. <laughs> yeah, me too. But the, 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 the alcoholic is actually the savior of the family. Now I get that that's a convenient um, narrative for someone who's in recovery, <laughs> it, but it, it, when you look at it from that perspective of bringing, I mean, I sat in a room once with a family whose son was on the streets um, shooting math. And I, I have, you know, when someone's doesn't care about anything, you have no leverage over them. I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to help him and his family right. on what the parents were divorced and the mother and the father had not spoken one word to each other in 20 years. Oh my okay? goodness. And the father and his other son were like, hardcore racist, uh, white supremacist. And the mother was married to a African black man. And we were all in the same room. And I, I, and this dynamics. Oh, I was like, you could cut the tension with a knife. Um, and I, and, and the, the kid is sober today, got married, having a baby. I mean, it's one of the magical story, but it was one of those things where talk about the, everyone was so freaked out and upset and afraid for this one person that we were able to have a conversation, get everyone, the whole family in the room, even with these really uncomfortable dynamics. And I think that's what I see over and over again is that this idea that the stigma around alcoholism, alcoholism is is the cry the the battle cry for families that says I am tolerating the intolerable and it is making me ill. And in order to tolerate the intolerable, I need poison. I need anesthesia. Exactly. And I, I think that's what we do. And then we learn these new skills and, you know, for a person who is a professional number, um, you know, you, you are an, basically an anesthesiologist. Um, you are now, I now deem you doctor yeah. anesthesiologist. <laughs> yeah. um, for you to say, I can deal with my feelings for you to be willing to deal with your feelings. Incredible. I think it takes a lot of, a lot of fortitude to do that. And I didn't have that without group. I didn't have connections either. And uh, the arms crossed was a way that I kept people away. I've, uh, you saw that picture. That's about when it started about that age mm. is when I had my arms crossed forever. And every picture you see me in after that, pretty much my arms are crossed. If it's a, just a, somebody taking a picture and not posed, I think that that's the way I kept people out. And there is a, um, a YouTube or Ted talk about something called rat park. Are mm -hmm. you familiar with that? I am. Yeah. And that's about connection. And yep. I think that what was 
lacking for me was a connection to someone, yeah. uh, a real connection, not a marriage connection, not a but somebody who understood me kind of connection. And I think that's what Lion Rock brought to the group is that I could tell that these people were just like me. They were just like me. Even though and they were probably very different, right? All very different. I mean, I was, and I've always said that I will never have as many days sober as I have drunk, but these people were the same in so many aspects. I may be older, but we all had the same problem. Alcohol was still ruling our life and everybody wanted to be in control. So I think the people that still want to be in control are the ones who have problems. That's where my spirituality comes in Mm. is that I very much have not, I try not to be in control all the time. Yeah. What does your recovery look like today? 600 days, 600 plus days in it's incredible. What is it? What is, what does recovery look like? I still go to group once a week. I still in group once a week, same people, no different group, but it's a, it's a different group. None of the same people. I also go to a Dharma recovery group Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I still journal. I've started doing art. I have, I said that I had one immune autoimmune illness. Now I have two. They usually travel in cousins and I now have two. So in order to visualize a healthy body that doesn't hurt all the time, yes, I still feel pain. Um, The, I'm working on an art piece that relates to healthy blood. Instead of focusing on what my blood does not do, I'm focusing on what it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And it really surprises me that I can actually draw. I mean, I haven't drawn in so long. And so I do art where I didn't before group. I would have never picked up a pencil. Never. So um, I also meditate at least at least once a day, sometimes twice or three times a day. Once to wake up, once to go to sleep, and sometimes when I'm in a lot of pain, the pain that I feel is constant, and it is like an ache in your bones, maybe like when you're growing up and you feel growing pains, that's kind of what it feels like. I'm not sure how bad it is. I just know it's there all the time. It's uncomfortable. So for me, pain is uncomfort, not necessarily pain. Yeah. So if I'm having a particularly uncomfortable day, I will meditate for that. I do journal. I do still struggle some days with, it would be nice to just have a glass of wine and not remember what's going on because I don't want to deal with this today, but then I can talk myself out of it, you know, with this, you know, play it to the end and think about how far I've come. And I wouldn't give this up for anything. I'm not going to give it, I'm not going to give it up. I don't want to give up my sobriety, especially for alcohol. I mean, we broke up and that's it. (laughs) And um, (laughs) the end of story. So I still think this shit is hard. I think life is hard. I don't think that, that having, I think that facing defeat every day with alcohol is something that I didn't want in my life. I wanted I'm I'm successful with education, successful in jobs, successful in what I do. My kids are successful. I feel like I do pretty good. And then along comes alcohol and messed it up. So my sobriety now is very much a conscious, conscious effort to keep my sobriety 
in the forefront of my life. I know when I'm overtired mm. and I, because I can also be a workaholic, mm-hmm. I would rather work than deal with you. So mm-hmm. let me just work. I'll just mm-hmm. work and work and work and work and not deal with emotions or anything. Just let me work. That's another way I escape. So I have to face that and know that if I overwork, I will not be comfortable. And I can tell now when I'm grumpy and tired and hungry and all those things that come with it, I'm recognizing those things. And that's what it looks like is for me to be present every day, for me to think about my journey and my spirituality. I always focus on being outside. Nature is Mm. my church. Mm -hmm. And I'm a huge outdoor person. My husband and I have tent camped in 49 states. I am an outdoor person. Wow. I would rather be outside than inside on almost any day. I like it when it rains. I enjoy windy days. I like being outside. So I try to spend as much time outside as I can. And when I'm working, the door is always open. My little office is out in the backyard and the door is always open because I'm trying to be around nature. That is something that started, even though I had it all along, it is really a focus now. It gives me energy and energizes me. But I really do focus on my eating. I focus on things every day in my mind. I try to be mindful and not have a full mind. Um, Try to be mindful and that And mindful about my addiction, mindful about how I try to escape and mindful about my relationships with other people. That's incredible. That's incredible. And it's a perfect recipe. And, and, you know, for you, um, you know, when you're describing your, you know, being allergic to yourself, right. It's, it's your, your bones, your, your literally the thing, your structure, create something that hurts itself. Right. So for you, I think you don't have a choice. If you deviate, you are going to, there's some sort of symbolic thing that's going to happen for you because the universe keeps putting the you- universe is going to say, okay, uh-huh. you're going to do this or uh-huh. you're going to, you know, yeah. Or we're going to make you completely allergic to yourself and, you know, have to exactly. deal with it or, and you or, have to pay attention. Yes. You have, we, we will make you pay attention. And I, I'm very much like that too, where I will ignore my feelings or I have a, a disc problem and, um, it, and I will be fine. Right. I'm fine. Um, fine, fine, fine. And then my back goes out and I have been able to track that the stress, any, any increase Mm -hmm. in stress creates an environment for my back to go out. And in my head, I don't know I'm having feelings. I really don't. I really don't. I Boy, really, I know that feeling. I yeah. don't know that I'm having them. I had no, I, I, my husband will, will say to me, like, I'm worried, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. I don't know what you're talking about. And then my body will go out and my, something will happen. And I have learned how to go, okay, my body's hurting. What's happening in my body? what am I feeling? Because I have to, I have to back into my feelings because, because of the way that I was trained to, to deal with them. I was trained to put them away. And so, um, people like us, <laughs> we have to be really careful because we're going to end up in a wheelchair. If we don't start listening exactly. to our body, to if our I don't bodies. pay attention to my own body. I make myself sick. Yep. And that includes like paying attention to what I eat 
paying attention to how I sleep, paying attention to exercise or paying attention to meditation or art or things that bring me joy. I'm, I have to really pay attention to that because if I start having stress, I have to back off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have to back off and I don't know how to do that. That's something I wasn't raised with because I was never taught to back off. If you, you just have to keep going. There is no backing off because there isn't anything to help you anyway. Right. And so I'm still learning. Um, you know, I, I'm still learning to not disappoint myself. Mm -hmm. I'm still learning not to take everything so personally. I just was working on a case for someone. I also do legal work to help deaf community with legal mm -hmm. cases and do the background work. And I was doing the background on something in a case that I had been involved with for a really long time. And I pulled up, they're now on an appeal, and I pulled up this file and I opened it up and it said, tell the attorney Lisa's drinking. And I was like, holy cow. And then you think, well, is it true? Yes. Did you know it? Yes. So what's the big deal? It's, you know it, they knew it, everybody knows it. Yeah. So I disappointed myself, but yeah. that was before. Right. And I have to deal with that. I have to deal with that. And it, it, it I guess in the past, it would have sent me to the bottle mm -hmm. and it doesn't do that anymore. My husband and I can have an argument and I'm not going to go to the bottle. My dad can be a complete unhappy person <laughs> and I can deal with that. And I don't go to the bottle and right. I have, I'm dealing with it, but that's what, that's what therapy and line rod brought me. And so my sobriety is a definite mindset every day. I wake up thinking about it every single day. As it relates to the deaf community and recovery, um, you know, you were involved with this before you were involved with your own recovery, easy to hop right back in. So how, you know, with what are some of the deficits that you see in accessibility for the deaf community and, and recovery? I believe that just like the rest of us who drink or have an addiction, there's a problem with the family. There's a problem with connections. And for deaf people, I'm going to say probably 90% of them don't have relations with their families that are meaningful. My husband's father passed away and my husband is 62 and never had a conversation with his dad. Never. Your husband is deaf? Yes, my husband's deaf. My second husband's deaf. And um, the, the problem is without having those relationships and not being taught coping skills. Because they didn't do sign language? Is that what you mean? Didn't sign. Okay. Never okay. had, never okay. had a conversation. So most families don't sign because the oh. doctors in the community want you to talk. Well, talking is not going to make you a whole person. Communicating is going to make you a whole person. Right. And the ability to communicate comes and goes for different types of people. Some people can lip read. My biological daughter can lip read upside down in the dark in a corner. But my husband couldn't lip read. He can't hmm. lip read. So, and he can a little, but, you know, yeah. he's just not Picasso at it. And what happens is that people don't have that connection in their family unless they have deaf family. So my adopted daughter, who's the youngest, is is deaf. She grew up in a family uh, in India, so we have a um, intergeneration, an intercontinental family. Um, her family doesn't sign, although they really try. 
she struggles with the connection to her family because of it. When you don't have those connections and you don't have anywhere to turn, drugs and alcohol yeah. is the easy way to, to move forward. So many people that are deaf struggle with addiction. They struggle with the same things that we struggle with. Spirituality, addiction, emotional issues, education, finding a job, stress. And without all those, the ability to get help, mm-hmm. because there are so few signing counselors mm. that focus on addiction, very few. So all of the people that I dealt with all those years in NA and AA were going to a hearing group meeting mm-hmm. through a different language, trying to make a connection <clears throat> through me. Mm. And you can't make a connection through someone else. You have to make the connection on your own. So every single one of them, except for one, relapsed. One of them ended up dying. And it's sad to me that the deaf community does not have an option. They can't check into Lion Rock. There's no no accessibility. They can't go to an AA meeting in New York City. Maybe they could, but it's hard. And then you're trying to make that connection through an interpreter. Right. So where do you get the individual help? It's really hard. So I don't blame the deaf community for how they react. I reacted the same way, but I was able to get help and they can't. It's interesting. When we first started Lion Rock, um, I was the only person answering the admissions line and um, I answered the phone and I'll never forget this because it was, it was a bizarre experience for me. Um, answered the phone and there's a man on the phone and he says, I'm an interpreter. I'm on a, a, a video conference call with a woman. Um, she is intoxicated and I am going to be interpreting for her. I will no longer respond as myself. Okay. Correct. That's what I do for a living actually. Oh, now, okay. At home. That's so, the same thing. So, so I'm like, okay. Um, but then, <laughs> then, then what proceeded to happen was, you know, I mean, it, there was some comedic, uh, you know, aspects to it because he was saying her drunk things and he, as a man and they didn't apply. As a woman and yeah. 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 I was, there was, there was a lot. And I would say to him, I said, listen, she's drunk and I'm trying to help her. You need to drop out a character and tell me like, you know, and he, you know, he did one time, but he like, he was like, I cannot do that. Um, and I remember feeling very powerless and she was saying, I'm, I'm drunk. I'm going to, she was saying like, I'm going to go hook up with all these guys at the bar. And he was like, I'm going to hook up with guys at the bar. Exactly. <laughs> oh my God. This is just a wild, but I remember, I rem- I'll never forget. I mean, it was almost 10 years ago or more. And I remember thinking, I, I, th- I don't even know about this. I didn't know when he called me and we had, this was a service. And, and I remember feeling, you know, her talking about wanting to go to the bar and not, ha- you know, not being able. And I remember feeling very helpless because even if she had been blind, I probably could have helped her more. Right. See, and if you're blind, you could check into Lion Rock and hear them anyway. Right. Right. And, you know, like even people that are hard of hearing, if you have a hearing problem at all, it may not work because you can't understand maybe someone's accent or someone's language or somebody who has a bad connection that day. It's really hard to connect when you have to go through someone else. And 
that's what the problem is, is not having the ability to do that. And so my, I started off after Line Rock, I thought I'll go back and get my, I have a, a doctoral degree in education. So I thought, well, I'll go back to school and get my master's degree in psychology so that mm-hmm. I could help these folks. Yeah. I can't do that. I'm too old for that. I would love to. I would love to help in some other way, but I can't do that. I don't want to go back to school. So it's a problem in our community. And um, that's something that the can our overall world doesn't notice. And I know what it feels like not to be noticed. Nobody yeah. notices. Yeah, not to be heard. Um, yeah, I, I would love to... Um you know, do more to help. We should talk about this after we're done recording. I'd love to do more to help with that because I can, um, I can see that. And, um, I have a friend whose name is Moshe Kasher. He's a, uh, I love that name. He, uh, yeah, he is a comedian and he was born to deaf parents and oh, he's funny. Yes. That's funny. Being in a deaf family is hysterical. Like my family is a hoot. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> All the stuff that goes on that you don't know about. I've got one story about an alarm clock that is absolutely hilarious. Okay. Tell me. I want to hear it. <laughs> okay. So we lived in a house on an island near the ocean <laughs> and, uh, and we were, we only had one neighbor and okay. at that time it wasn't built up. There were no neighbors and we have a all glass around two sides of the house. Like okay. it's completely glass and the, we had skylights all over the top and I had just, gotten married to George and we had just been together a short time. So I wasn't used to waking up with a deaf person. Right. And the alarm, he got up, he worked a job where he had to get up at 4 a.m. And we had gotten a puppy and I went outside with the puppy and I looked back at the house and the alarm apparently went off because it looked like a lighthouse. The lights were going out, the skylights and the lights were coming out of the, and, and I thought to myself, that's why the neighbors don't speak to us. They think aliens live here. <laughs> Because of those kind of things. And so we have just lots of funny stuff that goes on in a house with deaf people. Do they feel like in those situations, do they feel vibrations? I would think that the vibrations of, of major noise sometimes there's a shaker that goes under my husband's pillow that would shake and he could sleep through that and the (laughs) hurricane and the earthquake and (laughs) everything else. So, right. right. Uh, but it, it, they do wake up with different, you know, the alarm, the lights, the sound, you know, it depends. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done um, here and I would love to help with that. And I think you sharing your story, you know, maybe the idea of being heard is so important <laughs> and what about that? In a, I never, it never occurred to me that you're connecting through an interpreter and thinking about that. And so I think bringing awareness to, you know, it's all about what we're doing with this podcast. It's like, we're bringing awareness to these things that, you know, when you've never experienced it, it's hard, you know, you can be empathetic, but you, you don't necessarily ever, it never occurs to you. You know, everybody needs access to some sort of recovery program because it affects all of us the same way. It doesn't matter what exactly. our abilities or disabilities are. So I think it's, you know, you are the canary in the coal mine for that. And I, I love that. It's really great. And um, I'm grateful for your time and your story. It's incredible. I know that Thank you. you are going to do great things and continue to help people. And um, I'm really, really 
blessed and grateful that Lion Rock could have a small part in that. Thank you. And I'll just say that there's a lot to be grateful for. Yeah. I have a lot to be grateful for. And I started off not thinking that I had anything and I have so much to give back. And I am very grateful for you and for Lion Rock and for my recovery. Yeah, me too. Me too. Thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I probably will not listen and not look at it. <laughs> I am, I'm very, uh, I, I'm, I'm still a very humble person. And I, even though I've interpreted in, in front of hundreds of thousands of people on a stage for very famous people, absolutely don't like attention. <laughs> so, well, no worries. We won't force you to listen. Yeah, I would like to pass it along, but I'm just thankful for my, I'm grateful for Line Rock, but I'm also grateful for my family. Yeah. I'm grateful for their support in my family. And, you know, if I didn't have the life I had, I wouldn't be where I am. So I can't complain about that either. Yeah. Yeah. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meetings, schedule, and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at LionRock.life.